0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's a test that some Americans have taken and some haven't. But whether or not you've taken this test, chances are
1: your results are out there somewhere. There's really very much a seeking mentality for Americans who came here and are often disconnected from their roots. That's Libby Copeland,
0: a journalist who argues home DNA tests are changing our sense of
1: who we are even for those who've decided, yeah, they're not really for me. I really think in years to come, we'll look back at this as a really, um, a liminal moment where we started to grapple with the significance of what's happening sociologically and psychologically to, to Americans.
0: Copeland started grappling herself with what this moment means when she was assigned to write a story for The Washington Post, and she ended up somehow deep in a family mystery that took a whole bunch of hairpin turns. But that's the rub, she says. Most people
1: assume these tests are routine. They wouldn't reveal anything surprising about them. I mean, that's the problem with statistics is that none of us think that we're going to be a statistic. (laughs) Um, And, that, in fact, that's part of the problem because people go into it unprepared because they think they know all that there is to know about their families. And then they're really blindsided because while there are these warnings, um, you know, they're not really that in your face. And so no one thinks that's going to happen to them. And once you know it, once it's happened, well, goodness, it's too late to go back and unknow that information. So then that's a big thing to grapple with.
0: Copeland is the author of the book The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Uncovering Secrets, Reuniting Relatives, and Upending Who We Are. And she notes that as she chronicled this new era in the U.S., an era that's making us rethink our identity and how we deal with it when that ground shifts, she realized we're losing our privacy in a series of seemingly
1: inconsequential drip, drip, drips. And people generally think of this as the low investment, you know, holiday gift typically to find out just a little bit more about themselves. And that's part of why they're often taken so off guard when they discover something unexpected, because they were just looking to find out how Irish they are. Alice collins Playbuke pretty much knew
0: her genealogy before she became an early adopter of DNA tests in 2012 – Her family was from various parts of the British Isles, though she may not have known the exact percentages of who was from where. But as commercials for home DNA tests will tell you, there's always a chance that long-held assumptions can be wrong. Growing up, we were German. We danced in a German dance group. I wore lederhosen. When I first got on Ancestry, I was really surprised that I wasn't finding all of these Germans in my uh, tree. I decided to have my DNA tested through Ancestry DNA. The big surprise was we're we're not German at all. 52% of my DNA comes from Scotland and Ireland. So I traded in my lederhosen for a kilt. And so there you have it. Sometimes you take a test and you have to do some hosen kilt swapping. And sometimes, like in Alice's case, it gets a little more complicated.
1: So it's 2012. She spits into a vial. She sends it off. And a few weeks later, she gets this email with a link and she clicks on the link and she looks at her ethnicity estimate, which is like basically a pie chart that shows where your uh, genetic ancestry comes from. Now, having done her genealogy quite Exhaustively on both sides, she's fully expecting that she's primarily Irish with some English and Scottish. And in fact, what she discovers is that half of her genetic ancestry is not at all what she expects. Half of her genetic ancestry is listed as European Jewish or Ashkenazi Jewish. At
0: that point, Alice understood that her world was being pretty seriously
1: rearranged. This essentially means that one of her parents isn't who he or she thought they were, and that she, in some sense, is also not who she thought. Possibly one of her parents isn't who she thinks of as a parent. And so she has to figure out what this means. The earth-shaking results were actually not as uncommon as you might think, Copeland
0: says. She notes that north of 30 million people have taken these tests, and millions of them have opened those results to find a fairly major surprise. In Alice's case, her mother could have had an affair, and her father
1: wasn't who Alice thought it was. That probably would be the explanation for most results like this. It's such a common phenomenon, there's an acronym for it. Um, it's called an NPE, and it stands for non-paternity event. Sometimes it's called non-parental event, and it's, um, it's a very, um, of unexpected results, it's the most common kind of unexpected result that you can get. Common, maybe,
0: but it wasn't what Alice was destined to uncover. Instead, she kept getting all these weird results, like that she had no genetic material in common with one of her cousins. She had always thought of herself as Irish Catholic, and all of a sudden, that seemed a lot less clear. Who she was was changing, though she didn't yet know
1: why. Alice treated this as her full-time job. She had retired, by this time, she had worked in um, information technology. She had great, vast experience in information flow and databases. And she took all of her incredible technological skill and she plowed it into this. And she did this all day long. She enlisted her sister and their siblings. There seven of these Colin siblings. And they spent mostly, Alice and her sister spent basically the totality of those two and a half years, primarily Alice, solving this mystery. The mystery was finally solved because as more and more people took tests, the
0: number of people related to her in databases was growing, and it was becoming easier and easier to figure out where Alice, or any of us, sit in a vast genealogic web. And one day, a woman named Jessica became Alice's missing link. She was a stay-at-home mom living in North Carolina who had gotten a super weird result from her own DNA test. She was a lot less Jewish than she thought she was, but she was a lot more Irish, which didn't seem to make any sense, except to Alice, who soon put the pieces together and realized exactly what had happened, and then she found the paper records to back it up. On a fall day in 1913, at a hospital in the Bronx, a hospital that doesn't exist any longer, by the way, Alice's father and Jessica's grandfather had been accidentally switched at birth. No one had realized it, not for a hundred years, until DNA testing came along.
1: I think she would say that there's a bittersweetness to the knowledge because there's a loss and a gain. But I think she would also say, and I, uh, from my interviews with people to whom that has happened, I've heard this echoed over and over, that knowing the truth is incredibly important. Um, Knowing the truth about one's genetic identity becomes another piece of the puzzle. It's not everything. But once people can have certainty when they've been in a place of uncertainty, that's incredibly meaningful for them. And if something about your heritage turns out to be different than what you thought it was, for
0: whatever reason, Libby Copeland found that people start to ask basic questions, like, what's my religion? What are the foods and the traditions that are part of my heritage? Which piece of the American story is mine, and which parts should I let go? Rosario Castronovo has a very, very different story than Alice Collins' playbuke, but they both, at some point, had to confront some of those essential questions about who they were.
1: Rosario is a man who had been into genealogy for a long time. He was also an early adopter of this uh, DNA testing technology. And what surprised him when he tested was that he found that he had significant sub-Saharan African ancestry, which he had not expected to find. Um, He had been told by his mother that he was Sicilian on her side, and he had very strongly identified with Sicilian and Italian culture. He was, in fact, even... Um, singing opera. He married an Italian-American woman. He proposed to her, I think, in Italy. Um, he converted to Catholicism. He really identified with his Italianness, hmm. And uh, it was incredibly important to his sense of self. And so discovering this made him wonder, what does this mean? And um, he went back to his mother and he said, you know, let's talk about this. And it eventually turned out that his mother had a white mother and a black father, and that this relationship, when she was conceived and born, had made her the brunt of incredible racial discrimination where she lived. And she was so uh, traumatized by this relationship, which left her with basically no family, and the uh, abuse that she suffered as a result um, made her decide to never tell her child who he was in terms of who his grandfather was, his black grandfather. Um, and so for Rosario, that reckoning, which, you know, it's a lifelong thing that he is reconciling himself to the beauty of embracing this thing that so traumatized his mother and understanding the history of how this came to be in America, right? How it came to be that his mother had to deny this to her son and what it means for him to claim it now. And
0: So he is not Italian at all.
1: Yeah, he's not. I mean, could he explain
0: to you or what did he say about, like, how that part of him that was, like, so important to him, right, that he was Italian, how it, it changed things that um, actually he wasn't? What did that mean in terms of, like, himself and his own identity and religion? I mean, so many things get food and religion and all sorts of things, right, get tied together, cultural
1: activities, everything. Yeah, I mean it's it's very strange to be like, for example, in your fifties and all of a sudden have this profound shift. I think Rosario would say that he has always been a kind of a seeker, a seeker of self. I think he felt all his life like he was looking for more of a cultural identity because he didn't have much of one. He just had what his mother had said they were, but there wasn't much. And I think that he was. Profoundly grateful to learn the truth, and to be able to find out his true story, and to be able to go back. As I said, he's a genealogist, so this allowed him to research the history of his family, to find out who his grandfather was, to find out what it was like to have been living, you know, at the time where they, where his grandparents were living, and and you know, a white woman and a black man having a relationship and having children, um, what it was like for them. So I would say, you know, I couldn't tell you whether he feels at peace or like he's still searching, but it seems to have added a great deal to his life in terms of his ability to understand who he is and where he comes from.
0: Um, one of the founders of Ancestry, which was really early on the scene with these DNA tests, um, told you, this is a quote, I am worried about the control of the data and I'm worried about corporations owning this data.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot you can find out from genetic information, and it is housed in the possession of these um, private companies and in some cases on public or quasi-public databases, um, which is allowed for transformation in law enforcement, which is another story. But for the information that's being housed by these private corporations, there are a lot of concerns about what could happen if that information were to be hacked, were to be breached, were to be leaked somehow, if your insurance company were to find out that you'd done testing and request your results and thereby alter your um, insurance coverage. So there are a lot of concerns about what happens if this data becomes known outside of these silos. Do people worry about that down the pike, like the notion
0: that you could do a test, they find that you're, let's say, at a very high risk for some sort of really terrible disease, and And an insurance company finds out and realizes you're a terrible risk. Like nobody would want to insure you, like given now what they know about yes. what's in your DNA.
1: Yes, they do. And not only do they, but states are looking at protections against this sort of scenario because the federal um, legislation that exists has a lot of loopholes in it. There is some federal legislation meant to protect you against genetic discrimination, but it's not it's far from comprehensive. Um, People do worry about that. I have not heard of any cases where it's documented as something that has certainly happened, but um, I have talked with legal scholars and privacy scholars who do worry about that happening eventually. I guess I wonder, too, you
0: know, the, the, the cost of these tests have gone down a lot, and I've heard people like in biotech say sort of on the side, not necessarily out loud, but that that it may be that part of the reason these tests are not that expensive is because the real value in knowing the information is not in what you pay for the test; it is in the company owning the information and subsequently doing things with it. I don't know what you think of that. Yes, I think that's true.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the cost of the kits is negligible, right? It's hundred bucks. It's fifty bucks during a flash sale. And, you know, I think we've seen with, with 23andMe that the real potential is the ability to, um, you know, develop drugs, to look at um, the genetic underpinnings of certain diseases. And so that's really, you know, for 23andMe in particular, it's the um, genetic data married with these, um, you know, people will fill out research Um, questionnaires through 23andMe, and it's the phenotypic information married with the genetic information that allows them to understand um, what's happening in our bodies. And so, yeah, for sure, I think that that that's a big piece of it. And, you know, you've seen also recently Ancestry and MyHeritage, which are both other players on the scene, have added testing for health and, you know, health traits and health risks. So I think that's definitely where things are heading.
0: Let me talk specifically about the case of Twenty Three and Me because in two thousand eighteen, they made a big deal with the um, pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline, and uh, the uh, I think GlaxoSmithKline invested something like three hundred million dollars in Twenty Three and Me. So I mean, there was a lot of money exchanging hands, and the idea was like, okay, here's we've got all this information, we Twenty Three and Me, we've got all this information about people, and you know uh, what's the, what their DNA is like, um, and maybe you can use it to help develop new drugs to understand things about people. I, I, do you think when people sign up to 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 get like some information about you know, whether they're from Scotland or they're from Brazil, they have any idea where this stuff is headed
1: eventually? I think it's complicated because on the one hand, when that deal was announced, there were people who responded by saying, They're exploiting us. Right. (laughs) And it's interesting because then there was a whole discussion about what's in the fine print. What do people know? Maybe people consented without realizing it. But I mean, I would I don't I don't know about that. I know I was pretty clear about what I was consenting for. More broadly, I would say there's generally a problem with consenting online. And that's a problem that goes beyond home DNA testing, but is very important in the context of home DNA testing. And that's because this material is very um, central to who you are, and we really don't know what will happen to it a decade or 20 years down the road. We literally don't know. Um, That's why some people hesitate to test.
0: Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Libby Copeland. She's the author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Uncovering Secrets, Reuniting Relatives, and Upending Who We Are. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back for our last few minutes, more about the surprise relationships that genetic tests are uncovering and how they're helping us track down people who don't really want to be tracked down. You can find out more about Libby's book and read the whole story about Alice Collins Playbuke, who ultimately discovered that her father was accidentally switched at birth. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. In the spring of 2018, there was a major breakthrough in a cold case. The case dated back to the 1970s and involved an especially violent and devious criminal, a serial rapist, murderer, and thief. I first became involved with a case with Jane Carson, who was victim number five. So when they realized they had a serial rapist, they uh, thought, okay, we need to pull a team together to investigate these cases. Carol Daly worked as a sheriff's investigator in Sacramento County, and she remembers that for a time, communities were consumed by the unfolding crime spree. They were terrorized by this man, who always seemed to slip away. The community was in a panic. were flying off the shelves. Guns were rolling out of gun stores like crazy. Everybody was arming themselves. And then nearly 45 years after the first attacks, the case of the Golden State Killer was solved.
1: Yeah, so this was the major event that made everyone sit up and take notice of the role that commercial DNA testing and the techniques of genetic genealogy could have in solving cold cases. And I mean, there have been many cold cases solved since then, going back 50 years in in some cases, all over the United States.
0: Libby Copeland is the author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Uncovering Secrets, Reuniting Relatives, and Upending Who We Are. And she says cracking cold cases is only one way that genetic testing is quietly but drastically, changing our lives. People are discovering parents and children that they didn't know they had, secrets about their heritage that their parents may have wanted to keep hidden, and facts about their health, which raises lots and lots of worries among ethicists and those in the scientific community.
1: There's some concern about, you know, how much control you have over your genetic information once you test And um, how much notification you might get if that's DNA or that genetic information, I should say, is sold or shared with a third party. There's concern about the use of it by law enforcement and access by law enforcement. Um, There's concerns about what kind of protections are in place to prevent um, information from being, like, hacked, for instance, and becoming public. Because we've seen that um, even... So, so-called so de-anonymized genetic information, if it becomes public, if paired with the genetic information of other people, uh, that person can often be identified. So it's you're not really anonymous. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of... And then there's the insurance piece of it, which is, you know, if your insurer finds out you've tested and they ask you for the results, if you don't give them, that could be considered fraud. And if you do give them, that could potentially impact your certain types of insurance. And again, that hasn't happened yet, but It's something that people worry about.
0: It's hard to believe that kits from companies like 23andMe or Ancestry, which may cost no more than $75, $100, could unleash such a revolution or multiple revolutions in crime detection, in our understanding of our health, our heritage, our parents. But consider the world of adoption. About a million and a half kids in the U.S. have been adopted. And Copeland says DNA testing now means there
1: aren't. Any secrets anymore? Adoptees were early adopters of DNA testing technology. They used the technology to um, understand who their birth parents were, and they kind of pioneered a lot of this for um, the rest of everyone else. So it's, it's interesting because in a lot of states, there's laws that keep adopted persons from accessing their original birth certificates with the names of their parents, their birth parents on them. And there's been a lot of advocacy around, you know, adopted persons being able to access those. And what DNA testing has done is basically make it so that even if a state has a law on the books that says that you can access that, an adopted person may be able to find their birth parents regardless of those laws through DNA testing. And that's really been a profound change for that community. Another question about this issue
0: of to having children um, for many decades uh, sperm banks have existed so like if a man was infertile or a woman wanted to have a child on her own that was an option um, in more recent years egg donors have existed same thing you know if a woman's eggs weren't viable that was an option I mean there is a, a whole industry like a whole you know, right in these things um I don't know if you talk to anybody in that industry but same thing as adoption. This seems to completely sort of shift the ground uh, there for people who maybe can't have children naturally.
1: Right. It truly does. I mean, I'll, I'll say that most people who are you know know the position of what it's like to be donor conceived. Will say that it is really important to tell your child that they're donor conceived, and that's the general thinking right now. so there's fewer cases than there used to be of people being conceived and by donor and not knowing it until they test. but that does happen among people who are older and whose conceptions harken back to a time when parents weren't in the habit of telling their children as commonly so that's one big change but the the other major piece of this is that um Firm banks in the United States still promise anonymity to their donors in many cases. And increasingly, anonymity is not a promise that they can keep. And the reason is home DNA testing. So a man, I can read a man who had donated back in the 1970s, and he has um, 21 donor children at this point, plus his two children that he had you know, with his wife, and he never, never Imagined a day when this would happen. He thought he was helping other people make their families. He did not imagine a day when he would be findable. <laughs> You're right, right. Um, and so, you know, that may change. If to the degree that men don't think that they can expect anonymity, they may stop being as willing to be sperm donors. And that may mean that sperm donation moves overseas more so.
0: When you look ahead um, to the future for sort of consumer DNA testing, wh- what do you see? What's, what's coming down the road that maybe we don't see um, here?
1: I think in terms of the impact on consumers, we're moving toward a time when it will be impossible to not know your genetic family, right? I think that we're sort of in an in-between moment where it still feels like you have a choice to test and you have a choice to find out. Five, ten years down the road, I don't think it's going to be a choice. And what does that look like? If it, what does that mean? Like if I never test, yeah. what does that mean that it's not a choice? Well, even if you never test, there's a high likelihood that someone in your immediate circle has or will. Okay. That could be a sister. That could be an aunt. It could be a first cousin. It could be a second or third cousin. <laughs> so let's say that you're a man who 30 years ago conceived a child and you never even knew about it. Or you knew about it, but you chose to not have a relationship with that child. Even if you never choose to test, let's say that your son tests, like your son from your relationship with your wife, or let's mm-hmm. say that a brother tests, or let's say a first or a second or a third cousin tests, the child who's out there looking for you, trying to figure it, doesn't have a name, doesn't know who their father is, it's, it's you, but they don't know it, they can, by putting their DNA into a database and looking at their shared genetic material triangulate to you. Got it.
0: So you're like you're in the web. You're like, in the web whether or not you want so to be. It's so clear that you belong in this little yes. spot even if you've never spit on anything and sent that
1: spit in to a to a, a testing site. Absolutely. Okay. So truly you don't have the choice anymore increasingly whether or not you choose to opt in or not. You are opted in by dint of the fact that that people have made this decision for you. they they bought this as a Christmas gift for their sister and their sister tested. And that sister is your aunt. And that's yep. it. <laughs> Libby
0: Copeland is the author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Uncovering Secrets, Reuniting Relatives, and Upending Who We Are. Libby, thanks very much for this. Thank you so much, Kara. I appreciate it. On our website, we've got more about the cold case that I mentioned at the beginning, the case of the Golden State Killer, who was ultimately unmasked as more and more people who were related to him took DNA tests. That story is at innovationhub.org.